Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Lupold. Thank you for joining me today. It is now after the holidays that this episode has come out. Uh, last week, I played a replay for you of my interview with Pastor Matt Chuella and discussing the doctrine of the lesser magistrates because I figured it was fitting considering the series that uh, I just did on uh, idolatry and civil disobedience. And I wanted to uh, replay that one for you because it's, it's quite relevant and, and quite good, and I certainly commend uh, his, his books to you. But today I want to discuss, I want to continue to discuss resistance and the importance of lesser magistrates and kind of look at some historical examples. And maybe we'll have a couple episodes uh, that look through history, particularly Christian history, the history of God's people, and how they engaged in uh, civil disobedience using lesser magistrates. Uh, but first, of course, we want to start with our law or passage of the day. This one is a law of the day, and it is from Leviticus 19.18. It says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So it's pretty short and very well-known uh, verse. I mean, that is the verse that Jesus quotes uh, with regard to answering the question about uh, what, are the, what is the greatest commandment, love, love Lord your God, from Deuteronomy, and then second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. This is Leviticus 19. So that's the, the law that Jesus is quoting. And the beginning of that law says, do not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. So the explanation here is that, of course, the people of Israel are tempted to engage in anarchy and basically becoming vigilantes, where um, they're just going to take the law in their own hands, they're going to get revenge, and it's just going to become a breakdown in society with violence and bloodshed everywhere as everybody tries to get revenge on, the, um, on, their, on their neighbor who perhaps wronged them, maybe accidentally, maybe on purpose, doesn't matter, it's a grudge, and it's a complete breakdown of society when that happens. And of course, we do see that Israel before the monarchy uh, almost lives in, in pure anarchy, where it says twice in the book of Judges, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So that's certainly a scary place to be. But the reason for this law is that God wanted there to be peace and reconciliation amongst his people. Now, that does not mean that everyone you know, lives in perfect harmony and there are no problems to deal with. But when wrongdoing or sin took place, there was a proper way to handle it. And, and God had, in the book of Genesis, instituted the civil government. And that goes, uh, kind of traces back to Genesis chapter 9 at the Noahic covenant when God tells Noah that uh, he who sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So there you have the explicit command to use the sword, to use capital punishment against murder. And so uh, a lot of theologians trace that as the beginning of civil government. So the laws of God are to be implemented through judges and priests and through kings, um, not done on an individual basis by random citizens. They're not supposed to bear the sword. Um, God has instituted a certain uh, order, if you will, to it, structure to it. 
Now, in this law, God is addressing both the heart and the hand. So the sin of the heart is bearing a grudge. That's an internal uh, hatred, if you will. And Jesus does talk about hating your brother in your heart as being tantamount to murder in the eyes of God, and that's true. But the law also talks about the sin of the hand. So taking vengeance. So that's the action, right? So don't take vengeance, sins of the hand, and don't bear a grudge, sins of the heart, against your own people. So uh, neither are allowed by God, all right? Both are sinful. But there is a place for vengeance, just not you, just not the individual, just not the random citizen. The place for vengeance is from the civil government, the king. And that is explicitly mentioned by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, when he says that the government is the deacon of God's wrath, the avenger, God's avenger, taking vengeance upon the evil and the wicked. So, and, and that language is, is used explicitly in Romans 13. But due uh, to sin, there has to be vengeance and uh, the application of God's wrath because we live in a sinful world and God has, has put controls and order and structure upon that. Now, at the time of Israel, they didn't have a very centralized government. Certainly, in the book of Judges, it was very decentralized with basically elders in towns and villages. Uh, there was no monarchy, but even under the monarchy, like it wasn't what you would imagine a dictatorship monarchy might be in the modern world. Due to the fact that government was so decentralized, they did have in place what was called the Avenger of Blood. And if you read in scripture, you'll learn about this person. Uh, if essentially somebody commits murder, uh, maybe it was accidental, maybe it's manslaughter, maybe it's negligent manslaughter. There's, there's different categories of murder recognized, or I should say killing recognized in the Old Testament. The, the person who perpetrated the crime or alleged per, allegedly perpetrated the crime could, depending on the circumstances, flee to the cities of refuge, essentially a neutral place where the person would get a fair trial. But if the avenger of blood caught him before he got there, he, the avenger of blood could kill him, could put him to death. And if the person was found guilty, the avenger of blood is supposed to kill him, put him to death. Essentially, the avenger of blood is kind of like a deputized sheriff or executioner. It was typically the closest male relative to the victim, and it was a legally established uh, office. So you would know ahead of time if you were an avenger of blood. Like it would be established and you were um, authorized by the civil government to put the person to death, but there were controls in place. If the person got to um, a city of refuge, you could not uh, kill them. If they were deemed innocent after trial, you could not kill them. So the Avenger of Blood was essentially a sheriff or a deputy kind of person. But as the government grew, it became less of a family matter and became more simply just a government official kind of matter. Now, application for this law. Well, of course, no one, especially Christians, but nobody should be seeking revenge as an individual. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't, shouldn't care about justice. No, we should. But we should be willing to be wronged for the sake of Christ. Okay, so that means that you don't get revenge. Now, obviously, you go to the person, try to reconcile with the person. And then if it's not working out, 
you take it up the proper chain of, of authorities and you and you deal with it properly. Now, maybe it just won't work out for you. Maybe it just won't get done properly. Maybe there's not enough evidence. person won't say sorry. Government's incompetent. You know, at some point, you do have to give it to the Lord. Um, there is a proverb that says, many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that, the, that a man gets justice. So at the end of the day, God is the one that will ultimately provide justice. We try the best we can to seek earthly human justice, but there are constraints that are upon it that God has put in place, and sometimes things don't um, always reach full, perfect justice. And and even um, even in clear-cut cases, you're never going to get full, perfect justice. I mean, a murderer uh, who, who, who had basically killed somebody, that person can't come back. Uh, there's nothing that the state or the government can do to bring that person back. So, anyways, if justice needs to be done, though, then the government should do it, the civil government. So, the problem, though, is that if the government fails to do its God-given duty, then you have a temptation to more vengeance. Because the demand for justice never stops. Like, people still require, humans still require justice, and if the government fails to do that, well, then what else can you do? Now you end up in a situation where you have mob justice. That, that can happen. Uh, just mobs of people come together, uh, protest or, or burn things or kill people. Then you have gang justice where, you know, whether it's some suburbs or urban areas or doesn't matter what kind of gang or city you're talking about, but those gangs control the territory and they administer a form of justice among themselves. You could have drug lords in Mexico that they are controlling that territory. They administer a form of justice themselves. Um, and then you have the rise of vigilantes where individuals are, are engaging in justice. And it's kind of interesting how we do have an obsession with superheroes uh, in our culture. Now, what's interesting about superheroes is that almost every single one of them are vigilantes. Very few of them are endorsed or authorized by the civil government to engage in what they do. They do it because they see that justice is not being done. Either the government's incompetent, they can't do it, or the government is evil. The government's actually perpetrating injustice. So what's the answer? Vigilantes. So it's kind of funny that as a culture we are obsessed with superheroes, but uh, you, you really don't want to live in a world where the civil government's not doing its job and you rely upon vigilantes. So that is the application for that law. Let's move on now to uh, our main topic, which is that of lesser magistrates and resistance or civil disobedience. And um, like I said, we're going to look through a couple of examples here. I mentioned in the series I did on, on the civil disobedience and idolatry, looked at the connection between vaccine mandates and idolatry and how... Some, some, some principles that might come in play with regards to resisting uh, tyrannical behavior because all tyranny stems from some sort of idolatry. It, it could just be the person in power just views themselves as somewhat divine or somewhat, uh, you know, as an overlord, if you will, and they're idolizing their own power. Or there's a pride there. There's an arrogance there. Um, and then they engage in tyrannical behavior. So, now, now as far as um, 
engaging in civil disobedience, we looked at there's three basic forms of it. You can you can pray and offer petitions. So you you talk, you ask for help, you ask for reprieve, you ask for the perpetrator to stop. Then you run away, you flee, get out of there. Um, you set up some kind of distance or barrier between you and the person that's hurting you. And then last case scenario, you fight, you engage in self-defense. Uh, it's supposed to be defensive in nature. Um, you're not seeking to um, overthrow the government per se, but simply to stop them from hurting you. Now, as Christians, how do we proceed in understanding civil disobedience, lesser magistrates, and resistance? Well, a lot of it depends, right? Um, and there's no way that a person can provide answers to all specific situations. So if we're talking about vaccine mandates, right? Um, it comes down to whether or not you believe it is genuine idolatry. Um, you need to pray about it. You need to seek the Lord about it. You need to read scripture about it. And you petition. If you're really bothered by a mandate that's being put upon you, by the civil government or anybody, really, you first need a petition. And that might be religious exemptions. It might be just asking nicely for them to stop, to, to give you some time. Um, or it could be a medical exemption as well. And But even after that's done, if they say no, you still have to make a decision whether or not in good conscience you can comply. And if you can't do it in good conscience, then you shouldn't. You shouldn't violate your conscience. It's not a command by God. God has not commanded us to get vaccines. And God has not given the civil authority the power to do that. That is not their wheelhouse. Okay, medical decisions is not the wheelhouse of the civil government. So they're already acting outside of their God-given ordained authority. Their job is to punish evil. And refusing a vaccine is not an act of evil uh, by God's law, um, that you're supposed to be punished for. So anyways, but you have to be willing to count the cost. If you decide to say no, you have to know what's going to happen and just be ready for the consequences. And try to flee, of course. But even if you believe that it's idolatry and even if you're asking for exemptions or you're petitioning or you're running away, trying to find a new job, trying to move, um, even if you believe it's idolatry, I don't think that necessarily the vaccine is absolutely idolatry for everyone in any case. It depends on the context, really. So we as Christians have to not look down upon those who got the vaccine or the booster. Again, it's a matter of conscience, so we don't want to bind the conscience of others. But if your conscience is, is bothered by it, don't violate your own conscience. Okay, that, I don't think uh, God calls us to do that. So the key in all of this, though, in trying to stop what we view or might view as tyrannical behavior is the doctrine of lesser magistrates. Because in resisting the civil government, the individual has very few options. Like I said, you can pray, you can petition, and you can run away. Rarely, though, can you fight. It's very rare as an individual that you are authorized by God to engage in violence. It's super rare. Um, I can imagine a couple instances where that would happen, but not many. So passively disobeying, so basically just saying no, but you're powerless to prevent the consequences. You can petition and they say no, we're not listening. You can try to run away and they block the border or they say no, you're not leaving. Or they can chase you down. 
And at the end of the day, you don't have the power. They're not going to take you seriously. Um, you just don't have the power to get their attention or to make them think twice about what they're doing. So you're just going to have to work within the system as much as possible. And as individual Christians, we cannot become vigilantes and we can't become a mob of rebels. And that's why lesser magistrates is a key doctrine that we as a church and as Christians and as simply just humans need to recognize and become more familiar with. Because lesser magistrates, they exist, obviously, uh, and they serve as either barriers or enablers of oppression and tyranny. So they can either make things worse or they can make things better. And, and the reason for that is, that, as like I said, individuals can't really fight, but they can flee. But magistrates, it's the opposite. They can't really flee. I mean, certainly a, a individual magistrate can can run away and basically abdicate his office, but a governor cannot just up and pick up his state and run away. It doesn't really, you know, unless you're going to be the, the people of Israel leaving Egypt and crossing the Red Sea, there's really not much of a chance for a large group of people to flee. Um, so the magistrate, though, has the ability to fight because, well, he bears the sword in some capacity. Maybe a lower capacity, but he still has the sword. A magistrate still has it. And fleeing, by the way, has a very limited effect on deterring a tyrant. You know, a couple of Christians run away, or even if there's a large exodus of people, worst case scenario, the tyrant or the abuser just loses some citizens, loses some tax dollars. Um, and maybe not because those individuals leave their belongings and their property behind. So the magistrate is okay. He just lost a couple of, of, of people. That's the worst case scenario for individuals fleeing a tyrant. But fighting, as far as lesser magistrates go, fighting has a restricting or disciplining effect. It reminds the tyrant that his power is not absolute and that there are those who can challenge him. So we need to keep that in mind as it's a very useful tool in restraining evil because a person doesn't stop being a sinner just because they're in power just because they're in government it actually gets worse and the civil government itself has to be restrained right and our founding fathers learned that very carefully who is going to restrain the government the government's job is to restrain evil among the population but who will restrain the government against itself that's the key question. Now, even today, we see the doctrine of lesser magistrates in full force. Okay, so in the one side, you've got governors like Governor of Florida, Governor of Texas, uh, resisting federal vaccine mandates and mask mandates. You have the Oklahoma National Guard resisting the, uh, the Department of Defense mandates. But on the other side, you have uh, Democratic cities and states that are refusing to prosecute illegal immigrants. Okay, those are sanctuary cities. They are disobeying the federal government. They are ignoring the federal government. You also have issues of, with marijuana, where states and cities have legalized it, but it's still illegal under the federal government. And the federal government is doing nothing about it, so they're just kind of letting it go. But those states, those lesser magistrates, are resisting what they believe to be uh, an overreach or illegal federal activity. So the fact is, is that the doctrine of lesser magistrates will always exist. It's a real theory, and it needs to be applied properly. And that's why I wanted to play that interview with Pastor Truella last time. But now let's talk some examples. And the first example, 
we see uh, that I think is really important, worth considering, is from the Old Testament, and it's from 2 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. So let me read that here. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. But Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid him from Athaliah, so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, while Athaliah reigned over the land. But in the seventh year Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of the Karaites and of the guards, and had them come to him in the house of the Lord. And he made a covenant with them, and put them under oath in the house of the Lord, and showed them the king's son. And he commanded them, This is the thing that you shall do. One third of you, those who come off duty on the Sabbath and guard the king's house, another third being at the gate, sure, and a third at the gate behind the guards, shall guard the palace. And the two divisions of you, which come on duty in force on the Sabbath and guard the house of the Lord on behalf of the king, shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand. And whoever approaches the ranks is to be put to death. Be with the king when he goes out and when he comes in. The captains did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded, and they each brought his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath, with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath, and came to Jehoiada the priest. And the priest gave to the captains the spears and shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of the Lord. And the guards stood, every man with his weapons in his hand, from the south side of the house to the north side of the house, around the altar and the house on behalf of the king. Then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him and they clapped their hands and they said, Long live the king! When Athaliah, or Athaliah, heard the noise of the guard and of the people, she went into the house of the Lord to the people. And when she looked, there was the king standing by the pillar, according to the custom, and the captains and the trumpeters beside the king, and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets. And Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, Treason! Treason! Then Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains who were set over the army, Bring her out between the ranks, and put to death with the sword anyone who follows her. For the priest said, Let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. So they laid hands on her, and she went through the horse's entrance to the king's house, and there she was put to death. All right, so very interesting story where the queen mother, Athaliah, decides to murder the royal family and take power. Now, she was the granddaughter of Omri, who was king of Israel, and her son was actually Ahaziah, the one who had died, king of Judah, and he died only after being in charge for one year, being king for one year. Now, Ahaziah's sister hides the heir to the throne, Joash. That's, that's her nephew. And Joash is also Ahaziah's son and is the heir. Now, Athaliah decides to murder everybody in the royal family and take the throne for herself. So she reigns, and about seven years later, so she's reigning for a decent amount of time, um, Jehoiada, who's the high priest, or one of the, one of the priests, and uh, he gets with the captains of the hundreds and of the captains of the guard. 
and Jehoiada is priest and uncle to Joash, who is the rightful king. Uh, Joash is about seven years old at the time. And they form a covenant of mutual defense to protect the king at all costs. They arm themselves with King David's weapons, and um, they publicly pronounce Joash king. And apparently there's a large amount of approval from among the people, and Athaliah is overthrown. Now, it's interesting that she cries out treason, treason, even though she was the one who engaged in treason in the first place. So here we see that she was the unlawful ruler. She had broken God's law. She had overthrown the royal family, tried to kill them all, engaged in murder, assassination. She takes the throne and reigns for six years. So it's a decent amount of time. And when she is overthrown, she accuses them of committing treason. And of course, why wouldn't she? She thinks of herself as the rightful a ruler, the queen of Israel. The problem is, though, is that she's not. And the lesser magistrates who are under her authority, captains of the guards, captains of hundreds, and the priests, they decide this is not right. The real king, she tried to kill, but we have the real king, and we are going to reestablish the monarchy and reestablish the true king. And so they do. And they were right to do it. They are they are described as obeying the Lord and doing the right thing and reestablishing the covenant and reestablishing the line of David, um, which had been almost eradicated, almost broken. So that's just one example from the Old Testament. Now, kind of fast forward to after the time of Jesus, there's another example, and Pastor Truella mentioned it in his book, The Doctrine of Lesser Magistrates, but I wanted to spend some more time bringing it up here because it actually is a doctrine of lesser magistrates that's, that's involving the Jewish people and really at this time not Christians. But here's the context. Around uh, 40 AD, so really right after the reign of Pilate, Pontius Pilate as governor, and after the death of Christ, Christians are, are, still, are still there and they're spreading the gospel. But what's, what's happening at this time is that Caligula becomes emperor of Rome. And he's one of the worst emperors, by the way. Uh, he's uncle to Nero, and Nero was pretty bad. But anyways, there was a governor of Syria named Publius Petronius. Okay, so you have governor of Syria, and you have emperor Caligula. Now, Caligula began his reign in 37 AD, and he was a wicked emperor. He had his father-in-law and brother-in-law murdered. He had people executed without trial. Like I said, he was an influence to Nero, so that was interesting. Um, he began referring to himself as a god at some point, and he began replacing statues of the various Roman gods with his own face, and he began demanding people worship him. Now, in the east, in the realm of Syria, uh, there was a town of Jamnia where some Greeks, who were Romans, and they also practiced emperor worship, it was a very common thing at the time, they set up an altar to the emperor, the emperor Caligula. And Jamnia is on the coast of Israel. It's west of Jerusalem. It's not too far. Now, the Jews that are living there, they decide that they're going to tear it down. They don't want any idols in the land, especially so close to Jerusalem. And the Greeks complain about it. And so they send a letter to Rome complaining about it. And the emperor finds out that one of his cults of worship was offended. And one of his statues was torn down by the Jews. And Caligula, you know, being who he is, 
wants to punish the Jews. He wants to really get back at them for that. So what he does is he orders the construction of a, of a very large golden statue of himself, and he says he's going to place it in the temple of Jerusalem. So what better thing to do than to really stick it to the Jews by putting a statue of yourself in the holiest of holies in the temple of Jerusalem um, to make them worship it. I mean, that is as insulting and as offensive as you could possibly get. And so he orders the governor of Syria, Petronius, to make the statue and to put it in the temple of Jerusalem. And he gives him, because um, at this time, Petronius, as the governor, has four legions under his authority. Emperor Caligula authorizes him to use two out of the four legions to enforce this. So that's about 10,000 troops to make it happen. Pretty significant body of troops. Now, when this order comes down from Rome, Petronius, no, he, he understands things are not easy. Uh, Pontius Pilate had some difficulties with the Jews. Um, they're not the kind of people that you really want to, you know, just antagonize. It just causes problems, and it, it will later on, and that's why later uh, Jerusalem will be destroyed, because the Jews will rebel again, uh, and they've, they've had multiple rebellions. But Petronius decides that he wants to meet with the Jewish leaders and explain what's about to happen. He knows it's going to cause problems. So he tells the builders of the statue to take their time, uh, to give him time to figure out what to do about this order. And he's worried about riots. He's worried about economic consequences, um, whether it's grain shipments or the harvest or whatever. He, he knows it's not going not to go over well. He asks the Jewish leaders not to resist. Okay, just let it happen. Don't fight back. There's not much that can be done about it. But the Jewish people and their rulers, they plead with him. Um, there's, a, there's an account of this by the historian Josephus that talks about them coming out in droves and imploring him not to enforce this wicked order against their temple. And Petronius actually has his mind changed. And there's an account here where uh, Josephus um, describes a, a letter that Petronius wrote in his response to the Jewish leaders. And here's what Petronius had to say. He says this, I do not think it just to have such a regard to my own safety and honor as to refuse to sacrifice them for your preservation, who are so many in number, and endeavor to preserve the regard that is due your law which, as it has come down to you from your forefathers, so do you esteem it worthy of your utmost contention to preserve it. Nor, with the supreme assistance and power of God, will I be so hardy as to suffer your temple to fall into contempt by the means of the imperial authority. I will, therefore, send to Caligula and let him know what your resolutions are and will assist your suit as far as I am able." that you may not be exposed to suffer on account of the honest designs you have proposed to yourselves. And may God be your assistant, for his authority is beyond all the contrivance and power of men. Now, I don't know if Petronius was a believer. Sounds like he might be a God-fearer, as described in the New Testament, so maybe someone who believed in the Jewish God. Maybe he is a Christian. Um, it's hard to say. We don't really know for sure. But either way, um, he seems to recognize the authority of, of God, and he recognizes the problem that's happening here, and he's moved by their arguments. 
Um, and, and, and basically he says that his own honor and his own safety, um, he could, he could protect them, but that's not the right way to go about it. Like to, to make the Jews sacrifice their traditions and their beliefs and their temple and, and to offend their God, he can't stand by and let that happen. And he's willing to sacrifice his own honor and his own safety to do it. And he tells them that he's going to notify Caligula that he, that he's not going to comply, and he's going to try to assist them as best he can. Now, he only, he only has two out of four legions, so it's not like uh, he could really, you know, stand up too much against uh, the attack if it were to come. But he writes a letter to the emperor, uh, basically saying that he's not going to comply. He's not going to put this statue in the Holy of Holies in the, in the Jewish temple and basically just um, offend the Jewish people. Um, there now the emperor when he hears this is absolutely furious all right of course why wouldn't he be he just now he has one of his own governors saying no to him which he's probably not used to hearing Uh, so he writes a command he orders petronius to kill himself to commit suicide um, and basically remove himself from office from as governor interestingly though while the letter from caligula is on the way to Petronius, the order to kill himself. Caligula himself is assassinated by, I think, members of the Senate, because he had been doing all kinds of crazy, horrible things. So he was already having some troubles at home, and I guess he gets assassinated. And word or news of the assassination gets to Petronius before Caligula's order. So when Caligula's order for Petronius to kill himself arrives, Caligula had already died. And Petronius had already known that. So, conveniently, he can, that order no longer has any, uh, any bearing. So, it's interesting, Petronius doesn't have to kill himself, and he gets to remain in his position. And that's one of the earliest examples of a lesser magistrate, uh, and, and a good example of it. He sees a command. Uh, maybe he himself is not personally bothered by it, but the people that he is governing are really bothered by it. And maybe they were wrong to tear down the statue of the emperor in the town of Jamnia, but it wasn't right for uh, Caligula to then uh, go nuclear on them and put a statue of himself in the Jewish temple. It's it's like the worst thing you could possibly do besides destroy the temple itself. So it's clear that Petronius did the right thing. I think God honored it. It's it's very interesting that... um, the, you know, he didn't have to kill himself. You kind of wonder if he would have killed himself had Caligula lived, and then what would have happened? Would Caligula have ordered um, legions to go and and remove Petronius from office? We don't know. Probably best for Petronius that that didn't happen. But anyways, um, that brings us to the end of our time for this first episode. And so next episode, I want to look at some more examples of lesser magistrates uh, in the medieval period, Um, and at the early modern period. So we'll take a look there at some examples. So I I hope that this was a beneficial episode for you, that you learned a little bit, and I encourage you to to look up these these characters and to read read about them for yourself. Um, And again, if you haven't yet checked out that episode, where I interviewed Pastor Truella, please do so. And again, you can always email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions uh, about historical events, about uh, the Doctrine of Lesser Magistrates, um, I'm happy to 
address those questions. You can also find me on Facebook um, and Instagram and Twitter as well. Just look up the uh, GBG podcast or Governed by God and you should be able to find it there. So again, thank you for your time. Until next time, take care and bye.